Welcome to Diet Culture Dropout. Are you ready to drop out of the $72 billion narrative that you've been sold? Diet culture sells us lies, unattainable beauty standards, the narrative that your body's inadequate, and dictates how you should define your health. It is pervasive, oppressive, and damaging to all areas of our health. By dropping out of diet culture, we can together celebrate all bodies, work towards dismantling weight stigma, and stop the transgenerational trauma of body shame and dieting. I'm your host, Athena Brown, a non-diet and body-inclusive registered dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counselor, yoga teacher, and a mom of two strong-willed daughters. My passion is helping people heal their relationship with their body and food so they can live a full life without restrictions, size limits, or food rules. I also desperately want to change the narrative for our kids so they can be the first generation that never diets, has resilience in our body-obsessed world, and a positive relationship with food. This podcast is a safe space for exploration, mindful moments, and take-home practices for anyone looking to find food peace and body liberation. Please remember that this is for educational purposes only and does not replace medical advice from your primary care provider, therapist, or registered dietitian. I am so happy you're here. I want you to know that wherever you are in your food and body peace journey, that there is room at this table for you. You are so worthy, just as you are right now. I just created a awesome freebie that complements perfectly well with today's topic. It is called a lunchbox card that you can print out, customize it with your child's name and information on it, laminate it, and place it in your child's lunchbox. It reviews the division of responsibilities and kind of the ask from the parent in setting up this positive feeding environment at school. So take a look. You can get it off my website, www.peacefullynourished.ca slash freebies. Welcome back to Diet Culture Dropout. Today's episode is hopefully going to be aired and planting some good seeds for parents getting ready for the whole back to school rush. Today, I am joined with Jen Messina. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be chatting with you today. Jen joins us all the way from Vancouver, BC. Jen and I both share our practices around intuitive eating, fostering kids on generating positive relationships with food in their bodies um, and also like moms drop out of diet culture. So today we're going to be talking about fostering your intuitive eater at school because this can be tricky for parents to navigate. So I'm excited to dive in. But before we get into today's topic of fostering your intuitive eater at school, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are, where you're located and how you got into the work that you do? Mm -hmm. So I am a registered dietitian in Vancouver, BC. Um, I'm a mom of two. So I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old and I live very close to where I grew up. So I'm fortunate that I have family support here and I kind of dived into the area of dietetics because I myself struggled with my body image and my sense of self as a young person. 
and my family is traditionally very thin. Um, and so I was in a slightly bigger body, still would be considered a thin body, as we'll chat about later. And because of that, I always kind of felt a little bit out of place. And so growing up, I was always looking for this like magic bullet to kind of fix myself. And lo and behold, I fell into dietetics as a strategy to, you know, maintain my weight or lose weight or whatnot. Um, and then I was raised in diet culture as well. So I was very much raised in the early 90s and 2000s, um, where I knew, you know, what to eat and not eat. I also was very much schooled in diet culture as well. So as I started getting a little bit older, hopefully a little bit wiser and having my own family, I really wanted to change the narrative for my own kids to have a different relationship with food in their body. So I started looking into intuitive eating and with that falls into health at every stage. And so I, when we look at how we can start with mom, um, and then we work on the family dynamic and a family relationship. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that trajectory and very similar path as me and yeah, I feel like the school and diet culture just made a lot of things worse for a lot of dietitians. So it's good you're on the mm -hmm. other side of the tunnel now, right? <laughs> and the next question I'd like to ask, because this is a podcast and we can't see each other, can you share any identities or privileges that are relevant for listeners to know? Mm -hmm. So I think it's always important to identify that I am coming from a lens of a cisgender white female in a traditionally thin body. Um, so, you know, I don't have the struggles that people in larger bodies may face with the day-to-day -day stigma. Um, and so I say privilege from a place of like, these are unearned uh, privileges that I have. So yeah, that's just something to be aware of as we chat today. And then I also like to call out diet culture when we see it and just really normalize that it's everywhere and it even happens in our lives as well too. So can you give me an example of how diet culture has came up for you personally, um, how you kind of realized it and how it made you feel? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for many of us, the pandemic was a time that we really like hunkered down, stayed home, um, maybe ate more, coped with you know our feelings using different strategies. Um, and so for myself included, like my weight did change. And so rather than get upset about it or get mad at myself or try to like diet, which I, you know, we know doesn't work. Um, you know, as an intuitive eating dietitian, my next kind of step was to be comfortable. So I was uncomfortable in the current jeans that I was wearing. So I thought to myself, Hey, I'm going to go pop out, get myself some new jeans. Um, and went to a store that I usually go to, um, and grabbed a new pair, tried on the, you know, the size a little bit bigger and it fit perfectly, felt really good about that, went to the front desk and uh, I actually had three pairs, um, so in different colors. And then lady said, oh, you know, you're buying some new jeans, like quite a lot of them. I said, oh yeah, you know, my jeans, they weren't fitting me. Um, so I, you know, I thought I'd grab some new ones and she says, oh, they weren't, don't worry, you'll get back there. And I, oh I was quite surprised because here we are having this like normalized discussion about like, like I had said nothing about being like unhappy about it. Um, but it's just this discussion, I think that often women have, and maybe men too, but I, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of men friends, but this discussion of like, you know, how bad we feel about our body and that we should be ashamed or feel guilty or this and that. And like, that I should be able to quote unquote, get back to the body I had before. But like for a lot of us, like life has changed, including my own. And even as a dietitian, like, I think that that's okay to have these changes in our body. So, you know, I kind of mm -hmm. looked at her and I was like, yeah, maybe, or like, you know, I wasn't going to be like, 
this is fat phobia, you know, like, Mm -hmm. but you know, in that moment, I was very much taken aback by the prevalence and how normalized it is to kind of begrudgingly talk about our bodies in this way. But I'm just thankful that my body is still here and is still able to do what it's able to do after the pandemic when we had so many people that, you know, passed away and that sort of thing. So um, that was kind of an example that came to mind recently. And for all of you that are in uncomfortable clothes, it only reinforces your, you know, negative body image when your clothes don't fit. So mm-hmm. if you are struggling with that, get a couple of new pairs of jeans, you know, a thrift shop or something like that. Um, and it really does have a huge impact. Hopefully you don't have the same experience, but it really does have a huge impact on how you feel about your body when you're not constantly being pinched and prodded mm-hmm. by the clothes that you wear. Exactly. Oh, such a good example. Thank you so much for that one. So mm-hmm. to start it off, Jen, what is your advice to parents that again, have this feat of returning back to school, packing lunches and kind of your advice for setting them up for success? I know. And this is a huge one because I think many of us have like more of a free flowing summer and lunches are decided on the go. So I think having a bit of a game plan, um, you know, one of the things I'd like to share and people can check out later is like a bit of a roadmap in terms of like how to build a healthy lunch so that you're including a variety of foods, including some of those fun foods. Um, but also, you know, that you have some ideas for your kids in terms of like protein foods and fruits and veggies and all that kind of stuff that are easy and quick to grab and go. So, um, that's one of the suggestions is just kind of planning ahead. So you have some of those in advance. And then the other thing I like to do with some of my families is to batch prep some food. So like maybe it's muffins or waffles or banana bread or whatever it is. So you have some of those on hand because I don't know about you, but like September, I'm scrambling a little bit as we get back into the routine. So, um, you know, taking some time if you can to prep some stuff in advance, um, and then you have stuff to grab and go. Mm-hmm. Yes. I always thank my past self whenever I meal prep and have something. Totally. uh, Totally. Such a good freeing experience. We can just grab it and throw it in the lunch pail. Love it. Good. Mm -hmm. And because we're talking about the school environment and there are shifts in kind of the feeding relationship, we've previously on the podcast talked about the division of responsibilities, but just wondering, maybe Jen, can you just do a brief overview of what the division of responsibilities is, Alan Satter's model, how this shifts or is now going to be applied at school. Mm-hmm, definitely. And so just an overview, division of responsibility, the parents are responsible for the what, when, and where of feeding. So what's on the menu, where it's being provided, and the times. And then the kids are responsible from the foods provided to decide how much of those foods they want to eat from what you provide but also whether or not they eat anything at all. So the big shift comes, you know, in schools is that, again, we do have this division of responsibility at schools, and then the parents are responsible for providing the foods in the lunchbox. The teachers are responsible for setting up the environment that's conducive of eating together. And then the kids are responsible for deciding of the foods provided, which foods they eat and how much. So those are, you know, a bit of the breakdown at school. So, you know, where we see a bit of miscommunication, which I think we'll dig into a little bit more, um, is that sometimes we find outside sources telling the kids how much to eat. So whether that's, you know, a food monitor or a teacher or telling them the order in which they can eat things. So, you know, we kind of have a bit of a divide there. So I always like to, you know, set up that foundation. So we know that like your job, you know, as the parent is to provide the foods you want your kids to eat and the kids get to decide when they eat those foods, which foods they want to eat. And then the teachers get to set up that environment that's going to help them eat. 
connect in a, in a way that feels good for them. Exactly. Yep. So just the shifting of the location is really what's changing, but the parents are still in control of the what and the kids exactly still doing the same roles. Yeah. So what is your best advice then for parents that have maybe experienced some food policing? I know sometimes this is at the orientation for kindergarten, there just being this commentary around encouraging the healthy snack or kind of policing around food and lunch boxes. So what's your advice on handling this for parents? Mm-hmm. It's so hard because I think like many of the people that are like kind of listening to this podcast, we're all, you know, a little bit, you know, we have a bit more information in terms of like, what is diet culture and like the culture that we live in and, and how that influences kids. So we have to really look at it from, you know, a lens of compassion that not everybody has the same understanding of some of the things that we may be a bit more aware of. Like diet culture is super insidious. I often think about it like the pool that we're all swimming in, you know, the water is often like invisible, but it's everywhere. So I think some of the people that our children encounter are not necessarily going to know that certain things are, you know, potentially harmful to their intuitive eating self. So, you know, with that kind of frame of mind, I think come at it from, you know, a place that we can ask questions and be curious. Um, If we're noticing, like you get a handout, like sometimes I hear parents tell me that they get like a handout at the beginning of the year and it will be like, please don't include these foods, like only include these foods, these healthy foods and don't include these unhealthy foods. So, I mean, right from the get-go, you know, I would be curious around their um, understanding, like what does healthy mean to the teacher, right? So in the kind of model that we generally see, it's like, you know, vegetables are good and chips are bad, that kind of thing. So you might want to have a discussion with the teacher that you are really helping to support your kid have a positive relationship with all foods and have a food neutral approach and that you want to include a variety of foods for them. So a lot of times these like handouts and things like that, they're not policy, they're just recommendations. So you can say for our family, like we really feel strongly that we want to include a variety of foods. So are you okay with that? Like if my son or daughter comes with X, Y, or Z, like, is this going to be a problem for the classroom and then just get a sense in terms of like what they're you know how strongly they like sometimes it's just a handout that's been passed down from teacher to teacher other times the teacher feels strongly that like if their children in their classroom get sugar they're overly hyper and it's a big problem for the teacher so you know I would just be curious with the teacher in advance and like what their expectations are and then kind of go forward from there and then if you are noticing you know some of that traditional we call it like policing of the lunchbox get curious also of who is policing. Like in my daughter's class, she's in grade one, they had grade sevens come and they were the lunch monitors. So the first question to ask is like, who is monitoring the lunch, the lunch times or the recess times? And then, you know, is there any flexibility there in terms of like, say it is, you know, grade seven student, like, you know, can we have some discussion around um, letting kids eat in whichever order that they would prefer? Or if it's, you know, sometimes it's an EA or something like that. Like, is there, you know, having that kind of bringing that up and saying like, this is something that's important for us. Like, is that okay for, you know, my child to decide? Uh, Mm -hmm. So usually I would just kind of come up to the teacher and say, Hey, like, I was just curious about this. Like, again, we don't want to come at it with like 10 studies and like, you know, our like two page email. Like we want to kind of come at it more of like a discussion because the teacher is really like on your side. Like Mm -hmm. both of you have the intention of like setting your kids up for success. And so, um, you know, just thinking of them as like on your side, I think can help 
guide that discussion rather than that like adversarial approach where it's us against them. For sure. Yeah. And just thinking of like the volume and everything that teachers have to deal with on a daily basis and teach, you know, it's just insane what their, their workloads are. Right. So trying to keep it. Yeah. Easy, concise and compassionate. I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. And then what about, so that's more around like the food policing, the lunch boxes. Um, what about some more of that, like classroom learning or again, kindergarten this year for my daughter, we were already sorting foods and good and bad groups. And we were learning about giving up foods for Lent and things like that. Um, love to hear your take on, again, I know maybe along the same vein as a compassionate approach to the teachers, but, uh, yeah. How do you, how do you navigate this one, Jen? I know this is a really common one. And so the first thing I would like, again, like we know teachers aren't meaning to do harm. I think the first thing to realize is that again, like we don't know where these handouts kind of came from. Are they something again, that's been like passed down and teachers already have like lots of work on their plate. So creating a new handout might be just like another, like if they already have something in their health curriculum, it might be easy for them to just photocopy it. Okay. This is what we've been doing for 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing I would say is I would, you know, just have a quick chat with the teacher and say, Hey, like, you know, I had some questions about this handout that you're talking about, you know, I know that I noticed that you guys were sorting things into like healthy and unhealthy and that a lot of the foods that my children really like are in the unhealthy category. And so, you know, you might just start off a discussion like, were you noticing anything around like the kids discussion around this? Like, is this something that you created? Is this something that you're you know curious about changing or, you know, just having mm -hmm. kind of like an open discussion with them? Mm -hmm. Um and then rather than coming at it, like you're going to create, like my child have an eating disorder, but I think you can just, you know, say, we do know that children at this age do have a very black and white type of thinking. They're very concrete thinkers. So it's hard for them to have that nuanced discussion around if chips are bad for me, quote unquote, then why does mommy let me have them sometimes? Like that can be really confusing. So you can kind of have that discussion around this handout that's come up. So I'm fortunate in the sense that it hasn't come up for us. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a really open dialogue with my teacher right at, uh, you know, right at the start. And so I am a dietitian. I work with children and not everyone has that kind of background. So I think you can say like, are you open to learning a little bit more about this? Are you open to any resources? Like, and just see what they say and see what they come up with. Mm -hmm. Sometimes teachers are really open and willing to learn. Sometimes they're not. And I think we have to be okay with that. So, so mm -hmm. sometimes we're just going to have to, there is the option if you think it's particularly like a harmful activity for example if it was like I've heard of like grade sevens tracking their calories and weighing mm -hmm. themselves and yeah. you know if you think there's activities that are harmful mm -hmm. then you can definitely opt out of certain activities you can say my preference is that my child isn't involved in this um and so we're going to opt out um but if it's something that if it's sorting in the good or bad basket you can then have a discussion at home because the thing is, is we can't protect our kids from diet culture in general but we can help foster resilience to those messages. So my daughter went to day camp and the teacher said to her, ice cream is unhealthy. And so she said, well, actually all foods are good foods. So no foods are bad for us. And so she was able to, like, even if they had to do this assignment, it might be confusing for her, but still we would debrief at home and have the discussion that like at school, this is the way, you know, even if the teacher doesn't want any resources, doesn't want to change anything, you can still say, you know, this is the way that your teacher might think about it. But at home, we know that 
X, Y, or Z, that all foods have some value, that food is not morally good or bad. Um, so I think you can have that discussion uh, with your child because building that resilience is going to be really key for them as they progress through the world to, to also uh, notice that culture in all of its forms. So you're not always going to be, be there, but we want to just help them to notice it and see that like things are different at other people's houses in different classrooms, at grandma's house, like things are different and that's okay. But this is how we in our home feel about food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love like how that. did you go about that? Yeah, so very similar vein, having a conversation with the teacher um, who, you know, felt like there was some good insight, um, but then it lent, like, then it was like sorting foods again. So we, you know, my daughter will bring it up. I think we were eating pretzels one time for snack and she's like, mom, these aren't good foods. And just having that like curious, non-judgmental, not pushing my agenda conversation with her. And I really do think <laughs> that like as parents and role modeling, like we really have the biggest pull in like, you know, younger kids in terms of like what they know to be true and exactly what you're saying, what, what we do in our house may be different than others. And I think that's a really good lesson in itself is being critical and having noticing differences, because like you said, diet culture is everywhere. This is going to keep popping up um, in lots of different facets, right? Whether it's a Mm -hmm. teacher or a friend or a coach or something yeah but mm-hmm. way to go for Definitely. your daughter for like speaking up and saying I know there. you're probably like yeah <laughs> I know I was internally like so happy and she was so like baffled by the fact that this teacher thought this like because it's been and, and like if you haven't been doing this you know like I've been raising her in this kind of paradigm for a very long time but it doesn't matter where you are in your journey like you can even if you have been maybe using the dialogue around good or bad food and you want to change it Kids also love it when we say, hey, you know what? I've been doing things this way and it's not really been working out too well. Um, So what we're going to do is something a little bit different. Mommy's been learning and this is what we're going to try. So it doesn't matter like where you are in this journey, like helping your children have that healthy relationship with food. You can start at any time. There's never like an age where it's too late. Um, And then they do do start parroting the, the messages that you say, right? Like they do start having the same thoughts and they can notice like now we're working on like I'm starting to help her to like recognize like when there's no size diversity so that's the other thing like when we notice like oh like none of the princesses have different body shapes like isn't that curious like is that the same at at school and so you can start getting them like savvy on this stuff like as you work through the different kind of stages that they're at in life like maybe you don't do them with a two-year-old but at seven she does Mm -hmm. notice that like certain bodies like aren't shown on TV, you know, and why is that? Exactly. Oh, what a good lesson. Yeah. Good. So you've already kind of dove into the next one, Jen, but what are other ways parents can foster these positive relationships uh, with food? Like as a parent, what are some more tangible takeaways? Well, I think like, as we know, we really want to be neutralizing food. I think that's, it's hard and easy at the same time. So you know, if you always call food healthy or unhealthy or good food or bad food, red light food, green light, you can just start calling the food by its name. So this is a cookie. This is a cracker. And then I get a lot of parents saying, well, then what, how do I navigate? Like, if I don't want them having a cookie at 8 a.m., like, you know, usually I would say like, that's not a healthy food for breakfast. So like, what do I say instead? And I usually just use the phrase, it's not on the menu today. So I think parents, you know, can just start calling food by its name. Cookie isn't on the menu today. Why not? Because I set the menu. The menu today is 
waffles or cereal or oatmeal or whatever it is that you guys want to serve. But parents still get to decide, like just because you're working on intuitive eating doesn't mean parents don't decide what's on the menu. So the other question I get a lot of is like, well, if I let my kids decide, then all they're going to want to eat is like cookies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they don't get to decide. So I was telling them that like, yes. you decide when the cookies are being served mm-hmm. and then you let them have the cookies at those times. So I think, you know, some takeaways would be neutralizing the food language. The other thing is like, if you're noticing that your child is overly excited or obsessed with sweets, one of the things I always like to work on with my clients is actually increasing the frequency of availability. As, as we know, forbidden foods are so much more, we have a drive for those foods so much more. If your child is obsessed with sweets, And they always look at me like I'm totally nuts. But I say, you know, can we serve them every day? And they go, what? Every day? Like that's, you know, I only serve them once a week. And I say, well, what about if we tried every day in their lunchbox, something sweets in there? And I'm not Mm -hmm. saying a chocolate bar, but like maybe it's a piece of chocolate or maybe it's some gummies or maybe it's whatever it is that you feel comfortable doing. And then occasionally allowing them to have what we call unlimited amount. So occasionally allowing them to have a plate of cookies or have seconds, thirds on ice cream. So, you know, allowing them to have that food definitely takes away the drive to want to over consume it. So those would be two places that I would look at to help support them to have that healthy relationship with food and then letting them listen to their bodies in terms of quantity. So no like caveats, like two more bites of broccoli before you have more potatoes. So let them listen to their body around the meal times. Um, sometimes they're only going to eat blueberries for dinner. And I know it's annoying and frustrating, but over time we actually see in these food records that kids will most of the time, unless there's like, you know, some pediatric feeding disorders, which is a separate topic. Most of the times they will meet their requirements over a two week period. So letting them like leaning into allowing them to have as much of the foods that you decide. So if blueberries are on the menu, and they have a ham sandwich and maybe some broccoli and all they eat is the blueberries, then we just let, lean into that and allow them to have as much of that as, you know, within your budget. I think that's the other thing. Not always does it work for the budget, um, but if it's feasible and affordable, you know, you let them have that for their food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. And just that trust is like the biggest piece in all of that, right? It's just trusting that your child can self-regulate or you're giving them like some parameters where they can experiment and learn that. Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they will barf and that's okay. Yeah. Like I've had kids like eat like six mandarin oranges because you know, they were testing mom to actually yeah. see if mom would let them have as much as they want mm-hmm. and they barf. And guess what? Next time they don't have six mandarin oranges. Yeah. Like yeah. they learn from that lesson. They learn from that life lesson about their body. Like it doesn't feel good to only eat fruit. And then the mm-hmm. other question I get is, well, then what happens if they only eat fruit all day? And so I would say to that, well, you don't need to serve fruit all day. Like say mm-hmm. they eat like six mandarin oranges for lunch. And then at dinner, you maybe don't serve fruit, right? Or you don't serve food at, fruit at snack. And then you serve vegetables or you serve other things. So, you know, the safe foods that you provide don't have to be the same every time. In fact, I would encourage you not to have the same foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get to decide what's on the menu for the next meal yeah. or snack. Exactly. So really like trying to stay in your lane with the division of responsibilities of your role in the feeding relationship. Exactly. Um, Anything else you want to add, Jen? I think that kind of wraps up like that question. And I think parents, you know, I know you're doing your best. So I think 
if you've been doing, like we said, like if you've not been doing this and you have been encouraging to have. And so the reason why we don't want to be messing with that relationship is because it puts certain foods then on a pedestal. So if we're bribing kids to eat their, their broccoli with more, like if we say you can't have any more bread until you have your broccoli, then we're teaching them that the bread is so good and so valuable and the broccoli is gross. So we want to help neutralize all foods, that all foods are good foods and that they know internally how much they need in order to grow and thrive. So that's kind of the outline, like the background on why that is. But if you haven't been doing it that way, again, especially with older kids, you might have a discussion like, hey, like, you know, mom's been pressuring you or encouraging you or whatever to eat X, Y, or Z. From now on, I'm going to be doing it this way. And then just go forward from whatever place that you are and then move forward with your, you know, with your strategy. And then it often, to be honest, it gets worse before it gets better. Like sometimes the kids will test you. Yes. especially if we've been doing things a certain way for a long time. So if that's the case, then we want to just be patient and know, like I'll have some parents say, well, all they want to eat is the dessert at dinner. Like when I serve dessert with dinner, all they want to eat is the dessert and ask for seconds. That's totally normal. If you've been restricted in something, then you want to have more of it. So that's okay. Just keep, keep it up. Keep doing it. Eventually, like the less, you know, we make sweets a big deal or we make bread or pasta or whatever it is a big deal the less that they see it as a big deal. So now I'll get lunch boxes back with like some of the dessert left behind because mm-hmm. she didn't feel like it and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not necessarily the goal, but it's just seeing that over time we can trust them to know what their body needs to grow. Yeah. Amazing. So in closing, Jen, what is the single most protective action someone can take to protect themselves from diet culture? I think for parents, the biggest thing would be to start to notice every time you see it. So mm-hmm. awareness, like we can't be aware of what we don't notice, right? So like, mm-hmm. just keep keep an eye out and, and start to notice like ads on your, you know, Facebook or start mm-hmm. noticing when people talk, like I always notice it like when I'm like in a big group, like someone's mm-hmm. always talking about their like diet or this and that. And I quickly extract myself, like as a dietitian, I like try to avoid those conversations, but just start noticing it, noticing it, you know, around you, noticing magazines on social media, noticing it at the doctor's office, that kind of thing, like whatever you're kind of, and the more you're aware of it, the more that we can start to work to change it. I have some clients, like she went in with like one of her liver enzymes was very elevated. So she went to talk to the doctor about it. And the doctor was like, well, that's because you're fat. And she was like, I know from my discussion with Jen that this is like fat phobia in the medical system. So she was able to stand up for herself. And she went back and said, you know, I want more investigation. Like, cause I told her, I said, you know, what would they have offered somebody in a thinner body? Like they probably would have ordered an ultrasound, right? So she was able to kind of recognize that as a stigma and recognize that as like, and recognize that she needed more care. Um, so the more, again, like that we recognize these things, the more that we can like advocate for what we actually need in order to move forward. Awesome. And then the single most protective action someone can take to protect their kids, little people in their life. I know that's kind of part of the one you just went into, but do you have another hot tip for that one? <laughs> I would say like fostering resilience. So the more that we can create our home as a safe sanctuary, so we don't, you know, we don't talk about diets in our house. We don't talk about bodies. We don't talk about good or bad foods. We celebrate all bodies. So maybe that's looking at like your book selection or your art, maybe looking at your own social media or do you have a diverse group of people that you're following? Because in order for us to feel different about different bodies, we actually have to see different bodies. 
you know, having a look at some of those kind of tangible things around the house and seeing if we are celebrating different bodies and we are talking about different bodies as all being good bodies. So that would be, you know, my recommendation is to have the home like a diet free home, like have this as the bubble that like kids can come home to and they know no one's going to like second guess how much food they're eating or they're going to make comments about their body, even in like a loving teasing way or anything like that. So if we can just create this home environment that they feel safe in their body and safe to talk to you about other things that happen, I think that really helps build resilience to other diet culture messages that they may get outside. And they may be able to bring those home to you and say like, hey, this happened today. Isn't that weird? And then you can talk about it. So, you know, as much as we can do that as parents, I think that's the ultimate goal. Like we can't put a bag over their head and protect them from all the different messages they're going to get as much as we want to. But I think we can get them to be curious about why things are the way that they are by building that foundation of resilience at home. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. Amazing. So Jen, where can listeners find you and learn more about your work? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram. I'm pretty active there. So I'm just at Jen, the dietitian. I'm also, you know, you can check me out on my website, which is jenmessina.com. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate you sharing space in this important work. Absolutely. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed listening to Diet Culture Dropout. If you like today's podcast, I would love for you to leave a review, share the episode with a friend, or subscribe. The more we can collectively break down diet culture, the closer we get to food peace and celebrating all bodies. Thanks for being here. Thank you.